This is the Crystal Gemcast, the analytical Stephen Universe podcast. Yes, you're listening to Crystal Gemcast, episode 8. I'm Joseph. I'm Amy. And I'm Sam. And we're here to talk about the subject of families in Stephen Universe. And if you don't think we can, well, then try me, Famimi, Famiti La, and peace and war on the planet Earth. What did you say, punk? Big meaty spoilers. So, talking about peace and love on the planet Earth, it's great to be back here on the internet airwaves talking to you all. Yeah, it's been a little bit, I guess. I guess the last episode came out like a month and a bit ago. Yeah. We're not so great with the scheduling thing. I mean, we try, but we've all got lives and stuff. Well, two thirds of us have lives. I'm still looking for life. You'll find one. It'll happen. You have a life-ish thing. It's sort of a life. It's like... <laughs> That's a little harsh. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's best to start with our mailbag. 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 No, we're doing that again. No. 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 Uh, never. Uh, yep. Yeah. All right. Sure. Okay. Anyway, we'd like to thank you all. We have had loads of mail. Like a flurry of mail. A snowstorm of mail. Mailstorm. Mailstrom, even. I'm very sorry for that pun. And let's just get into it. We got a message here from Sam. Not this Sam, but a different Sam, honest. That says, I'm really glad that Sam has now joined the cast. And you can see why I wanted to make clear this was a different Sam. To continue on, it says, but I want to say that all your guys are thoroughly enjoyable to listen to. Keep up the fantastic work. Well, thank you very much, other Sam. No, actually, I messaged like us to make myself look good. It was a giant boy, just so you know. Oh. Well, it works. That's clever. No, I didn't, obviously. Actually. I know, I know. <laughs> oh, I believed you for a second. I seriously believed you for a second. <laughs> That's amazing. All right, uh, so the next piece of mail we have is from Tyrone Wells. I listened to the cast while at work in the lab, and I love your collective insights. I look forward to hearing more from Sam in the future as a permanent member of the group. Her analyses are so on point and thoughtful. She supports her arguments so well. Please keep up the splendid work. As an aside, I discovered the show via a random episode from the first season. It was a Dakani episode, and it initially dismissed it because I thought Steven was a regular human being and the show was about a dumb, happy-go-lucky kid living with a bunch of cartoon superheroes he brought to life or something or other. I'm interested in if any of you guys had had similar early impressions of the show that quickly changed after you got hooked. If so, please share. I just want to say thank you again so much. You guys' support of me being on the show is awesome, and I'm glad that I am not too off-putting as a new member, and you guys are awesome, 10 out of 10. I had a sort of experience where I had a sort of a different impression of the show before it got into it. I also was a little bit off-put by Steven, and I was like, oh, he sounds a lot different and seems a lot more annoying than I assumed he was going to be. Because I sort of was looking forward to the show after I heard that Rebecca Sugar was making her own show, because I loved her stuff on Adventure Time, so I was like, oh man, it's going to be awesome. So initially, after the first few episodes where Steven was kind of just the annoying kid trying to learn everything and everybody else is more like hyper, um, what's the word? Competent. That's the word. But then, as Steven matured and he learned more about his powers and about everybody else and about the gems and as everything else evolved, I was like, oh, this is awesome. And like everybody else, it got to a complete breaking point. Where it got Ocean Gem and Mirror Gem. Where I was like, yup, this show is great. I'm hooked. I'm completely hooked. Because I was hooked before, but then that was just like, 
officiating just how good the show was and how much better it was going to be. What about you guys? For me, I would say it was just the fact that I saw Cheeseburger Backpack and Together Breakfast, and I thought, well, this is nice. Not much to really, not brilliant. And then I just went away. If I'd have, uh, if my first watch of the show had been Ocean Gemmel, Mirror Gemmel, whatever it is, I would have stuck with it. And it's only going back through, like people saying, oh, it gets really, really deep later on. I'm like, oh, right, okay, I guess, guess I missed out then. You know, it's like the early episodes are really good, but they don't really sort of give an idea of how deep it's going to get, how good, you know. It's very much Monster of the Week, fluffy type episodes, which were good. I'm not dissing them, but we're in such a different show now compared to how it started. And if I'd have seen more of that, then I probably would have stuck with it more. I mean, as it is, weirdly enough, as I said before, I got into this through the Uncle Grandpa crossover somehow, which was weird. Most people wouldn't be able to say that. I liked it, but let's not go into that. Don't worry, bro. None of this is canon. I can totally get that. Although, I don't like this new trend of people saying, oh, just start from your gem and ocean gem and just go into it that way. Because I feel like even though the episodes before that weren't as good and as deep, I feel as if watching those early episodes was like the way to get the real foundation of how the characters started and how everything built up. Then when you get into the later episodes, it's not as, like, rewarding. And I still like the earlier episodes, even if I did find Steven to be a bit annoying. He got better, obviously, but I just don't like the the thought that, like, you have to start from when it gets more serious to really get the full experience of the show. I just think starting around from the beginning is still the best way to go. What do you think, Tommy? You know, I had a similar issue, but not as serious as what y'all had. I didn't get all of the, it's going to be so great after like an X amount of episodes. I was just told to watch it. And so my first exposure to the show, as I said before, was the Stephen and the Stevens song at the end of the episode. That really caught my eye. And so, you know, fast forward about a month after that, and I finally get around to Gym Glow. And it was okay. I decided to be sort of like a Danny Phantom-ish kind of thing. Where it was like Monster of the Week every week, and while there were more serious storylines, they would be contained to their respective episodes, and it wouldn't really have a lot of impact on the rest of the episodes. But I was really pleasantly surprised that there was a lot of continuity and a lot of build-up within the show, and the show matures as it goes on. And it does so very quickly and early, which is really nice to see. Mm. The time the show got my attention, like, before Ocean Gem Mirror Gem, when I was just watching every episode, because I, I never really stopped. Like, I, I kept going, because I still was interested in the show, and I just kept liking it more and more. The first episode that really got my attention was probably A Giant Woman. Oh, yeah. And also uh, the one with Sigalite. Coach Steven, that's uh, it. Yeah. Those ones that probably got me, like, initially, like, really hooked. I was like, oh, wow, the music's great. And look at these cool things called fusion. That's awesome. And wow, more emotions and deeper things. That's great. And I was like, well, I, I got to keep watching now. It was obvious, even that early, that it, like, it wasn't just a silly kid show like the other ones on Cartoon Network could be. So I was like, all right, I'm here for long haul. I mean, when I was doing my watch through, I think it was probably those episodes as well that sort of made me think, yeah, this is definitely great. I mean, I also really liked Catfingers, because I thought to myself, wait a minute, they're doing a horror episode. 
They're making me legitimately feel bad. Yeah, that's how I felt during uh, Frybo. Oh, gosh. Mm. Yeah, and I had, like, Akira flashbacks, except I've never watched Akira, but I've seen the South Park parody of Akira, and so I guess I thought of South Park, but it, it isn't a Akira <laughs> reference. That was real deep. Who's actually watched Akira, honestly? That was a joke. It was? And I haven't. I'm That kind of stuff's too gross for me. I'm okay doing without, personally. You try watching Evangelion. Oh, yeah, gosh. Yeah, Let's not. Evangelion dares you to watch it with its nonsensical attitude and complete and utter horribly written characters, except for Shinji and uh, I hear like the the gay love interest, because otherwise and otherwise everybody is just sort of cardboard cutouts. It's not that bad. I watched one episode when I was like fourteen, and I did not like it. I like the song in the end of Evangelion. That stuff's catchy. It sounds like Hey Jude. It just keeps tumbling down, tumbling down, tumbling down. Anyway, let's draw a line under that. So our next mailbag comes from Vicky Sheep, who says, Hey guys, I'm a big fan of the show, especially about everything Steven Universe. Your podcast helped me make my long car rides across Texas much more bearable. So because I love how y'all elaborate on almost everything, I wanted to bring up something kind of really minor in the show. Steven's shirts. I was always mildly curious to why he has so many of the same shirts, until I rewatched the episode Story for Steven. When Greg was in the van with Marty driving to their next gig, I was paying attention to the background and lo and behold I see it. A box full of dark pink shirts with the same yellow star Greg had on his black sleeveless rocker shirt. So it clicked. The reason why Steven has so many of his shirts is because it was all unsold merchandise Greg had. So yeah, I just want to see what y'all thought about it. Like I said before, I really love the show and appreciate the enthusiasm for it. Can't wait for Steven Universe to return and to hear the next podcast. And they end it with a heart, a star, and a heart. Well, hopefully you're listening to it right now. Thank you very much for the comment. I, I think we all can't wait for Steven Universe to return. I am beyond waiting. I am just... Dying. (laughs) (laughs) I said, it's even worse for us Doctor Who fans. 2017. Oh, is it actually? Uh, Yeah, we've got to wait an entire year or more. Oh, jeez. How will I live? Yeah, so uh, when does Moffat leave? He leaves after that season. So it's 2018 is when the new guy gets a new... Okay, so that's where I'm waiting for. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Moffat's not... Well, he's not... It's time for a change. He has his moments, but he desperately needs someone to supervise him. He's sort of like George Lucas. Well, so with Russell T. Davis. Yeah, but I'm just saying that George Lucas in episode four, the first movie, wanted to add a whole lot of political intrigue into it, but was talked out of it. There's actually a whole other subplot with Luke's best friend that dies in the attack, but this didn't make it because he listened to people. And then we get The Phantom Menace, which is ironically closer to the source material than even episode four was and the problem was is that nobody cares about the galactic trade route whatever it was where did i start with this oh you were basically just saying that moffat needs someone to do it. oh yeah he needs someone to uh rein him in because silence in the library and uh the other part of the two-parter and his stuff under russell t davis was actually really good well the thing is when you think about it Having to do one or two episodes allows you a lot more focus than having to do the entire series and make sure everyone else is sticking to plan. So it's a, it's a hard job. 
So, I don't know about you guys, but this isn't a Doctor Who cast. This is a Crystal Gem cast. Now we gotta get back to the old Steven universe and the question that Vicky Sheep had about Steven's shirts. Yes, and to answer that question, yeah, I totally didn't notice that. Well done. You get a star. Uh, I, I noticed it, but I just wasn't very vocal about it. I just thought everybody else saw it. I noticed it, and I was like, oh, well, that's kind of cool. That ex- That's like a little background thing that does explain that. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. So I'm the only one that didn't notice it. Pretty much. Essentially. I'm losing my cred. You're losing your analytical cred. Like, come on now. You gotta look at every single background and see all the little, little things that it adds. Come on now. You need to get your bachelor's degree, like Sam, who is essentially our Ninja Brian. Hey, I got a degree in video games. I, I'm not this Ninja Brian. I do not have a PhD. I cannot claim this to be <laughs> fact. I have an undergrad degree, which isn't the same thing. We just got normal degrees, not doctorates or masters. But you know what? Still degrees. Yay. I am still a licensed psychologist. That is not true. I am not a licensed psychologist. Do not ask me for psychological advice. So yes, thank you very much for everyone that's commented. We really appreciate it. If you've got any more, you can throw it to us at crystalgemcast.gmail.com or leave a comment on our website under this episode. Or message us on the Tumblr. Or message us on the Facebook. Or on the Reddit. Basically, there's loads of places, and we'll give them all again at the end, in case you guys forget. So let's move on to our mini-discussion, and we're going to talk about this hypothetical question. If we took the main characters from Steven Universe and uh, put them in an RPG, a standard RPG, that is, not that Attack the Light, although you should play Attack the Light because Diamond Mode is very hard and very awesome. Just saying. Where was I? RPG classes. What classes would it be in a standard Final Fantasy style RPG? Or D&D. Or, or D&D or anything like that. Yeah. So what do you think, Army? I'll start with you because you had the most when we pre-discussed it. Okay, so if I were going to put Rose anywhere, it would probably be in some sort of warrior rogue class. Probably somewhere like a paladin with a smattering of sort of a bard. Or some sort of a pilgrim, if I'm going to use uh, Elder Scrolls Oblivion. And then we have Garnet, who I would put in more of a monk role, uh, because of her fists punching. But with a spellblade sort of specialty, because we see her uh, manipulating energy a lot. Then we have uh, Pearl, who is very dodgy and very offense-oriented. Not dodgy as in problematic. You mean dodgy as in good at dodging. Yes, and... uh, I really think that she, again, is also a warrior slash rogue, but in a different way. Sort of a the duelist from Dragon Age Origins, or some sort of high evasion class of warrior. You know, like uh, the ninja from uh, Final Fantasy, especially because of the dual-wielding aspect. Amethyst is a pure warrior class with her weapon using. She doesn't really do much beyond that. Apart from Spin Light Sling the Hedgehog. Well, yes. And then we have Steven, who I would say is more of a bard than he is a warrior. Whereas, while Pearl could sing and could use charisma, Steven so- almost solely relies on it throughout the entire series. So he's more of a rogue bard with a minor paladin specialization. And then we got Jasper, who is a berserker. 
I would say I would put Peridot as maybe some sort of mage. And same with Lapis, though I would put Lapis as sort of a specialized kind of thing. Like they do in, what was it, World of Warcraft, where you choose between elements. I think when, I mean, I'm just going to put in here, when you look at the difference between classes, I think that Lapis would be a sorcerer, because in current D&D, a sorcerer is one that just has innate power, didn't have to study it, just, just sort of has it and has a lot of it. I would say that that's more her. She has that elemental sort of power and that's it. Whereas I think given Peridot's technician skills, I would say she'd probably be um, sort of an artificer class. Well, true, but I don't know. I, I would I would hesitate to put her there because the armor extensions are now gone. But that's not the only thing she can do. I mean, to be fair, Pearl has a bit of that too. That's a weird thing about the gems is they can do a lot. They have lots of... They, they multi-class like hell. Yeah. I don't know how they can do that, but they it's like, well, they've been around for like thousands of years. They're probably level cabillion. I think I definitely agree with you on Stephen being bard, especially since I've probably got a lot of it from his dad. And a lot of uh, people in fantasy tend to take up similar roles as their parents do, unless they're being really rebellious. Right. Part of what informs my leanings are... Their attitudes like Pearl is definitely a lawful good, whereas Garnet is neutral good, then you have Amethyst chaotic good, then you have your true neutral Peridot, etc. so forth. Um, Steven's clearly neutral good because he's a sweet kid. That's just how he is, you know. Hmm. Which kind of explains why he, he gets on with all the gems, but like sometimes I wonder that Garnet understands him the best because they think similarly in some ways. That's just my theory anyway. Hmm. Mm. What do you think, Sam? I think a little bit differently from Rami for some of them. Like, for Pearl, I mean, I should preface this with that. I have played D&D, but not extensively, so I'm not as familiar. But I still feel as if, for one, Pearl's, like, pure paladin. That is what I really feel fits her, like, the most. Just with her attitude of, like, especially towards, like, Rose and being lawful good and just, like... Serving to protect and... So Rose is like a patron? Sort of, yeah. That's sort of how I see it. For Garnet, I can see the monk thing, but um, initially I was thinking of like a warrior or a berserker in some sense. Just with how she attacks and what her like fighting style is. I can see the monk as of the fist fighting too, but at the same time I can also see the, the berserker side and the warrior side. Well, I was using my monk analysis based off of the Final Fantasy interpretation of the monk, where it's not necessarily an attitude, but a fighting style. More like Sabin from Final Fantasy VI, who was quite bombastic for as much of the toned-down nature of the translation could be. <laughs> I would chime in here with the fact that monks in D&D are in fact quite a lot like they would be in Final Fantasy. Well, the first Final Fantasy was basically D&D with the numbers filed off. Exactly. The monk class is very much hand-to-hand combat, and that is Garnet's forte, I would yeah. say. Yeah, and that's fair enough. And I interrupted Sam, so uh, keep going. I was going to say, with Amethyst, I actually completely disagree. I see her more as a rogue or like a thief sort of class. I see this because, one, I can see Amethyst with her being able to transform and sort of like with her tricky sort of nature... That her character class will be full of charisma. Like, just overflowing with charisma. And I feel as if, sort of, like, tricky, sort of, like, 
style is more fitted towards Amethyst. Like, her fighting style, I guess, could be sort of warrior-ish with her whip. But I don't know. I feel as if those sort of, like, sneaky, more trickstery sort of classes would fit Amethyst more in her attitude. I get you. That's just sort of how I see it. But I also agree that Steven would be a bard. Although I also thought maybe he could also be, like, a cleric. Or maybe, like, a ranger, given his uh, sort of pet collection that we've got so far with Lion, with uh, the centipedal, etc. so forth. Hey, get out of there! Lion, this is the Steven bed, not the lion bed! I didn't really think of that. I don't know if that completely fits. Although, I just think, like, more just, like, a support kind of character. Hmm. Like, he's getting more on the front lines, more with his shield, but, but still... In and of itself, a protective sort of a weapon. So, it's sort of like how I think of him in the uh, Steven Universe app game. Goodness, what is it called? I have Protect it. Protect the light. That's it. Just the sort of role he puts into that. Just as the healer, supporter, just encourager. So yeah, just like a bard slash cleric. Yeah, because if, correct me if I'm wrong, Joseph, but D&D handles a lot of HP and healing stuff. Uh, and healing classes like Dragon Age Inquisition, where there aren't a lot of healing spells per se, but you can add HP or add a second HP bar that's temporary. A few classes have the ability to have temporary hit points. It's generally the thing of a barbarian. They have what's known as second wind. The cleric is generally the healer that has the most protective spells, both in healing, uh, shielding. Um, other classes, others like spell casters can do it, but they tend to often be more fighty. Like, whereas a cleric, the cleric's kind of weird in that in a, lo- a lot of people play cleric where they have protective abilities magically, but then they generally are also quite good at fighting. They'll have a hammer. To be honest, a cleric can be quite overpowered in certain systems because you can tank, you can hit someone with your big badass hammer, and you can... Um, heal people so as for like all the characters i think you guys have pretty much covered it but but i could um i think pearl is probably more to do with the paladin garnet being monk makes sense amethyst sort of amethyst i find hard to class just in general because i can see her being a fighter but then she does have that rogue sort of a yes um and also attitude steven again protective class the thing with Rose is I have trouble pinning Rose down because I haven't actually seen Rose do anything. As in, she hasn't fought. She's had Pearl to do that for her. Most of the time she's just been, you know, flirting with, with Greg or in um, doing the Stephen Bomb, she helped Garnet out. But, you know, we haven't actually seen her fight yet, which is really interesting. I know she has the same powers as Stephen, but... Like, that just means she would have the ability to shield and bubble. So, I don't know. If you don't mind me cutting in, we did see her fight once during the answer. She did fight. She did cut those guys down. We don't really know exactly how she did it, but she did it. So... Oh, I thought she just did it with her bare hands, given the the punch animations in Foley. Yeah, I don't know. I feel as if, with her healing powers and having the shield like Steven does, but also... Seeming more into combat. Um, with Rose, uh, it's hard to say. Like, I feel as she would be, like, maybe, like, 
a cleric slash warrior, maybe. Yeah, she might be the actual cleric. Like, if Stephen's going towards more of a bard with some healing ability and um, uh, rangeriness in the fact that he has a lion. But Rose also had the lion, too. That's Rose's lion. Yeah, if I might actually move out of the gems, maybe consider Sadie a phalanx. I don't know what that would be in D&D. Heavy armor, spear. Oh, that would probably be under fighter. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm pulling from Ogre Battle 64 for uh, that one. Oh, that's cool. What, the one based of a queen lyric? Well, actually, technically, all of them are because uh, all Ogre Battle ones are. Uh, that, uh, But you're thinking of March of the Black Queen, I think? No, Ogre Battle is a song from Queen 2. Right. And I was just saying that because uh, there are two Ogre Battle games and then the rest are called Tactics Ogre. Ah. Well, one of them had the subtitle Let Us Cling Together, which was from... Yeah, then you're thinking of the original that got remade for the PSP and is now uh, in the Vita store as a digital download. To be fair, I just like Queen, and that's how I know about all this stuff. Let's uh, move back to the realms thingy. Do you have any other um, characters that you have classes for, Army? Well, unless we're going into fantasy life job classes where it's like you could be a cook or a carpenter or something like that, uh, I don't really have much beyond that. Sam, any more yeah. insights? Uh, mm, not really. Yeah, everyone else seems to just be NPCs. That's why we have our wonderful people here to open this out to. So, listeners, if you have any ideas on what you think main characters' RPG classes would be, um, you can pick any system you want, really. Or if you have any other insights to do with tabletop games and Steven Universe, we'd love to hear it. And we already talked about how you can get in contact with us. It's a subject that we all enjoy, and we might have news about that at some point, but let's not say that here, because we might want that to be a surprise. Foreshadowing. So, on this episode of the Crystal Gemcast, we're going to be talking about family. On Steven Universe, because it's a very big theme on the show. This actually was one of our first ideas when we were originally spitballing back in after episode one. And we didn't have a a lot to go on back then because it was just the one season. But as they've explored family dynamics even more in the secondary characters like Onion's family, etc. and so forth, we have a bit more to go on than back then. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about with, um... The way that Steven Universe treats family. There are many different types of families, and there is some focus on types of families that aren't often explored in cartoon shows, especially one, you know, targeted towards children, because they usually show off the nuclear family. I've never understood that phrase. I always wonder, are they going to explode? <laughs> Actually, you know what? I'm going to look that up right now. I know it's an American thing. Merriam-Webster dates the term back to 1947, while the Oxford English Dictionary has a reference to the term from 1925, thus it is relatively new. In its most common usage, the term nuclear family refers to a household consisting of a father, a mother, and their children, all in one household dwelling. George Murdoch, an observer of families, uh, offered an early description. The family is a social group characterized by common residence, economic cooperation, and reproduction. It contains adults of both sexes, 
at least two of whom maintain a socially approved sexual relationship, and one or more children own or adopted of the sexual cohabiting adults. Many individuals are part of two nuclear families in their lives, the family of origin in which they are offspring, and the family of procreation in which they are a parent. Which led to the little title that I made for it, the Fission Family. Oh, nuclear puns. Yes. Okay. Oh, gosh. In the case of Yellowtail, literally. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, as we're going to discuss, a lot of the families in Steam Universe don't follow the nuclear family model. There are a few, but most of them have different takes on family and what it means to be a family, and it's something that's really, like, interesting and sort of unique for a show to have a mostly most families to be non-nuclear. You know, it's sort of like in other shows that if you had a dad missing or a mom missing, you were more than likely the main character, and you were, like, on the early days where divorce was a taboo, so spouses died a lot in backstories. So uh, we had your Andy Griffiths, etc. and so forth. And even in more recent years, every character has parents, and they're always mom and dad parents. Like, you go to Fairly Odd Parents, everybody has a mom and dad except for Chester. And so they were usually exceptions. And if it was a main character that was the exception, it was always tragic. But if it was the side character, it's almost never explained or laughed off. And in a really rare case, the secondary character would have a backstory to it eventually, like with uh, Chucky and Charles in Rugrats, just before the movie, the second movie, I might add. Uh, came out, they did a Mother's Day episode where they went into the death of uh, Chucky's mom. And then after the movie, the Finsters were now a nuclear family, and now none of the characters were non-nuclear. The Finsters family wouldn't be nuclear then, though, because... Yeah, step-parents. Yeah, step-parents. They fit in the definition because uh, adoption was part of the thing, and What's-Her-Face adopted Chucky and Charles uh, adopted Kimmy when they got married. But that's still not a nuclear family, though. It doesn't really... The way that we consider nuclear families and how they're treated in TV shows is not really a nuclear family. It's a step family. It's family after another marriage or um, after something like that. The thing is, of course, is language changes. And I think certain times we use a term differently to how it's actually meant to be used. I don't know. I literally just like read a, what was like taking a course on family and they were treating them as different terms and ideas. And I'll defer to Sam on this one. But the point is that uh, Steven Universe is unique in that what usually would be the minority of family units within a show are now the majority, and there are very few two-parent households that we know of in Steven Universe universe. <laughs> yeah, I, no pun intended. <laughs> we're bad at this. What? Yeah. You can't control him, and he shouldn't be taking advice from me, and we don't have Rose to tell us what to do! But he needs us to show him how to be a gem! Steven is not just a gem. There has never been anything or anyone like Steven. We don't know what he needs. I think we should start with Steven's family as he is the main character. And looking at it, he's got such an interesting family because his family group is sort of made up of multiple elements and like looking at the core of it his dad's a single dad because rose died to be 
part of him, you know. Already we were at an interesting point, but the really interesting point is the fact that he basically has guardians, and we mean guardian in the actual term given as someone that isn't related to a child, but is part of looking after them and raising them, and that we have the gems with that. And that's already interesting, because you have that sort of frayed dynamic between Greg and the gems, because... Again, especially near the beginning of the series, they don't treat him terribly great. You know, he does his best, but he doesn't understand the gem stuff, and the gems don't understand the parenting stuff. So they all need each other, but, you know, because he's a bit of a mess. Again, the thing with Greg is he appears to be more of a mess than he actually is. Even owning a car wash, he's still able to keep them all well-fed and everything although obviously they don't have to feed the gems because they don't eat but i don't know though the amount that amethyst eats he must be doing reasonably well or she steals it and if you imagine a lot of it has been amassed over hundreds of years oh it have gone off it has remember they even made a joke about that where she ate like a really old burrito Ugh. in fact i think that was right before they found the painting of garnet punching a shark that's so cool Actually, doesn't Amethyst have a human skull in her collection? Maybe she wants it to play Hamlet with. Uh, well, it didn't start as a skull, though. Ooh. We don't know that. She didn't know about the head inside of the mask, so she carried around some dude's head in a <laughs> gas mask. <laughs> Frightening. And then it didn't realize it was a head until it had fully decomposed into nothing but the bones. That's worrying. Anyway. A family show! Well, that's the thing with family shows nowadays. You can get away with a lot more than you used to. Hey, don't say that around me because I will school you in Animaniacs and Freakazoid and Rugrats. Oh, I know, I know. I've always been able to do it, but not this blatantly, I don't think. Yeah. There's always been references that they've been able to get away with. Here, they can actually show things that they haven't been able to do before. Well, they haven't gotten away with something as risque as the fingerprints joke. Oh, gosh, let's not go into that one. Anyway, we're getting a little bit out of topic. Right, sorry about that. Yeah, but that's that's very common for us. I've noticed. <laughs> it wouldn't be a Gemcast episode if we didn't go off topic. And when we look at the gems themselves, of course, because we talked about fusion and how fusion is sort of a metaphor for love slash sex, Garnet is basically a married lesbian couple in of herself. So already that's an interesting family dynamic we got there as well, because... Again, Stephen's being raised by a lot of different people, all in one sort of collective. Their family's sort of more of a, a collective or a commune type well, situation. Yeah. And it happens a lot in families that have extended family nearby. Because I remember that because my parents had access to my grandparents and aunt and uncles and stuff to watch over us, that they could drop us off for a weekend at a time and have the time to themselves. And so... You've got that similar dynamic here, but more in the way of, I don't want to say it's confirmed or that this theory is anything more than a theory, but I do think that, at least in part, that the Crystal Gems and Greg's uh, parenthood represents that of a amicably divorced uh, couple and the family coming together to still take care of the kid. And that even though that the romantic love is gone and that there are sordid pasts that they have been able to gradually become friends again at the very least while they take care of this child. I can sort of see that. 
I mean, I don't know if it's exactly that. I mean, obviously, but I think it's an interesting way of looking at it. I think another interesting thing about Stephen's family is that, at the very least, Connie and Connie's family, like, initially would have seen this as a complete oddity to the point where, in that dinner episode, Stephen had to try and, like, falsify a nuclear family to show off to Connie's parents. Oh, yeah, I remember that episode. Fusion Cuisine, wasn't it? Yeah, Fusion Cuisine, that was it. Because there was that pressure, at least in that one episode, for Stephen to have a normal family because his situation was so unique. Of course, at the end, Connie's parents sort of accept the sort of, like, living situation that Stephen's in. But there was still that fear. There was still the show directly addressing the idea of not fitting the nuclear model of a family and to being able to accept that and to not be ashamed of it like Connie seemed to be. Wow, that was a masterful use of the because we love you shutdown. I'm quite partial to the it's for your own good myself. That 1,000 years of no dinner bit was pretty funny. (laughs) All comedy is derived from fear. Well, her parents are very conservative. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can imagine her fear of them not liking Steven or the Crystal Gems or Greg based off of compulsory cis-heteronormativity. Well, I think that episode showed that the Mahesh Warrens may not be conservative. They're just strict. Right. There's, there's a difference between the two. But I can get how, like, to a child that you might not be able to distinguish between the two. Oh, definitely. I agree That's with that. That's true. And... Like, yeah, it was mostly Connie's fear just so then she wouldn't be able to hang out with Steven anymore. But it was still that fear, that abnormal situation would, like, be seen as, like, too abnormal to be acceptable. So it was just interesting how the show itself addressed at least Steven's unique living situation in that regard. Well, going with my amicable divorce theory, with the extended theme song shown at San Diego Comic-Con last year, if I got my dates correct and places correct. Something like that. We have uh, that awkward scene where Stephen is starting to live with the gems in the temple house, but Greg still comes over to read Stephen books and stuff, and there's this sort of hesitation between the, the gems and Greg to interact while still simultaneously not there being any malice. I think the other extended metaphor is just as it would be. Like, Greg can't look after Stephen by himself, possibly, because of his thing. So there's situations in life where someone goes and gets married. Like, say you've got a family, they're all close-knit, and then one of the members of the family goes off and they marry someone and they weren't expecting it or they possibly don't know that that person terribly well. And then, say, that person dies, then you've suddenly got that sort of, sort of that family issue there like they're on one side he's on the other and there's that sort of gulf that the person not being there's created because I've, I've seen that happen at least once yeah where mutual friends uh have to hang out with each other for the first time without the mutual friend because when you look at it they're very different from each other i mean because they're aliens and because they're um just philosophies are different now sam i see written down here pearl mother stephen as she loved rose are you implying sort of a Snape kind of thing, where it's Pearl is looking after Stephen at first solely because he is part of Rose? Well, I wrote that. Yeah, I didn't write that. Joseph wrote that. 
Uh, okay, sorry about that, Sam. It's cool. But so, are you suggesting a sort of Snape situation? I think it's more just the fact that um, some people just can't help it. Like, if you care about someone and they have a kid, there's a good chance that you're going to spend time around that kid. And if they're all that you've got left of that person, if they've died or whatever, there's that sort of bond there that there might not be so much with the other... Especially since, again, Stephen's not got a mother figure, and... Well, he has five mother figures, if you count Garnet, you know, three times. <laughs> but not all of them take that role, because, I mean, I would also put that I feel like Amethyst and Peridot later on are sort of more like siblings towards Stephen, in the way that he treats them and they treat him. Yeah, Peridot being younger and Amethyst being older. I see Amethyst more as, like, the fun aunt, and... Peridot as, like, the younger sibling. That could work, too. Just the idea of, like, the fun aunt being like, Hey, do you want to go and get some ice cream and go out on adventures? And not having much else of the other actual responsibilities. Which is why I love being an aunt. Oh, that's so cool. I didn't (laughs) know you were an aunt. Oh, yeah, she's been an aunt for, like, three or four years. Oh, I've been an aunt since I was, like, 14. Oh, it's going to be a while before I become an aunt. Um... Uncle. Well, yeah, <laughs> not probably. I have four nieces and one nephew. Uh, wow. My oldest niece is eight. So I would have been about 15 when she was born. Because then I remember at my graduation in high school when I was 18, my second niece was born. And then my sister got another, another guy. And then there's another. Anyway, we're getting off topic. Uh, the point is, being an fun, I see. Amethyst as the aunt of the sort of uh, family situation. This time, let's build a moat. I could be the crocodile! Jazz hands. In some ways, it sort of blurs the lines, and that's the clever thing about this whole situation, is you can read multiple things into it. Mm. If we're going through, like, roles, I mean, I know Mami said that counting it, Stephen has quite a lot of mother figures, but again, when you look at Garnet... It's interesting because Garnet is very emotionally centred. She's the one that seems to understand Stephen the best, and he, she's the one that he goes to for advice. And like when he's sad, he does seem like he goes to Garnet more. I don't think he goes to her for advice much. I mean, I've seen them playing a lot, like in uh, Garnet's universe and um, with Future Vision. I, I'm taking that from Winter Forecast because she's the one that lets him see that he needs to go because she gives him all the future possibilities and it makes it helps him make the right decision. So I would count that personally as advice. Well, there's also the one where the gem clusters were first introduced and they were both talking to each other a lot about fusion in their relationships. Oh, yeah, I'm talking about socks. With fusion and things like that. Oh, keeping it together, I think. That was it. But yeah, I mean, she's given Stephen advice on other occasions too and... I think she's more ready to listen to him and, like, sort of treat himself, treat him more maturely. Like, I'm, I'm thinking of when, uh, the episode where Steven was certain that something was, like, coming from the, uh, teleporter before Peridot was, like, first introduced. And how Pearl thought that he was sort of making things up. And, like, it was Garnet who gave more benefit of doubt and then came to him and was like, we're sorry we didn't initially believe you. Uh, you're talking about Warped Tour. That's it. 
I remember a lot of what happens in episodes, but the names of the episodes, like, often just, woo. Yeah, I get it. Anyway, so there was that time, and then there's also even uh, Sirius Steven, where Garnet is, like, she's being really patient with Steven and him trying to get things right, even though he keeps messing some things up and, like, really does believe in him. So, in that sort of case, like, even though Pearl is more like the stereotypical mom by cleaning things up and having, like, the sort of mother hen sort of approach. You're so talented! That was great. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> and things like that. Garnet is there more just for, like, the sort of motherly love and connection in certain aspects and, like, the way that they have, like, such a balanced relationship where they can be serious with each other and also play with each other and Garnet can and will scold Steven when she feels as if he's in the wrong, but she still sees him more as, like, an individual than the other gems do sometimes. In that case, like, I, they both share the mother role pretty well, yeah. Garnet and Pearl, and have the sort of different uh, aspects of each. I think you got it pretty fair. Yeah. But not only is there Steven's family, there are many other families in Beach City that also um, take different and unique approaches to the family dynamic that we don't often see in TV shows. Yeah, you're right. And going back to someone we mentioned before, we mentioned Connie earlier. Even Connie, although she seems to have a very stereotypical family in some ways, both her parents work. And although quite a lot of parents work in real life, the television isn't very good at showing that sometimes. I've noticed that... um, Oftentimes it still portrays the mother not being at work generally. And there isn't very many house husbands, and there isn't that many both working families. Not only that, but Dr. Mahesh Warren is almost certainly the primary breadwinner, because she's a doctor. She works at the hospital, and I've forgotten his name. Um, Doug. I've forgotten Mr. Doug. Yeah, he, he, he works security. Doug and Priyanka. Yeah. So he's supporting her income. She's a primary breadwinner, and that in itself... I find quite interesting. Yeah, it's definitely a shift in the typical, stereotypical uh, family dynamic. Just the idea of her being the primary breadwinner. And I love how she's like the doctor, or is referred to like Dr. Maheshwaran rather than Mrs. Maheshwaran. Because often when there's a doctor in a family, it's usually the guy. Usually when people have a title, when a woman has a title, it tends to evaporate in marriage. People will only refer to them as Mrs. Yeah, and that's why I'm really happy that she still keeps the doctor title. Not only is there that, but there's also a lot of single parent families, and surprisingly enough, a lot of them are single fathers. So, for example, there was what we were saying before, Greg, who still technically is a single father, even though there are other guardians involved. But there is also... Mr. Fryman. Mr. Fryman. Um, he's presumed Probably. to be. We haven't seen the wife um, in any of the episodes. So we're going to presume that he's a single father, though it's not 100%. We might be forgetting something. But uh, there's also Mayor Dewey, who is a single father. And with the stats, they show that only about 20% of single parents are fathers. So... With how many single parents there are in the show, it's interesting how a lot of them are single fathers. Oh, also there's the uh, pizza family, which seems to have 
a single father, but with... Yeah, coffee. Yeah, but with the grandmother also living there. So there's another interesting family dynamic where instead of having a mother and father, it's a father and a grandmother. With the grandmother being the sort of motherly role, though. Not exactly. Other single-parent families is presumably uh, Sandy Stanley. We don't see a father. We only see the mother. We have the uh, Onion family that is a bit more common in media than the single father or the single mother. But the narrative is a bit different. Largely when we have stories about a single mother finding love, there's often a lot of shame heaped on the mom in that she has to regret her decisions and that it was a horrible thing to do and that her child is a burden on the relationship. And that's always a source of conflict. But you get the sense that Yellowtail treated Vidalia and Onion as people instead of woman with obstacle, etc. so forth. And while we do have sort of that prevalent trope of the jerk ex that ran from a pregnancy, we still get a lot of love and acceptance if there is a bit of conflict with Yellowtail and his children regarding career paths. By that, do you mean we're talking here about the fact that uh, Yellowtail wants Sour Cream to basically not be a DJ? But to specifically be a fisherman. I can see your point, Ami, but I saw more as like an interesting fact that they showed that it wasn't just like a mother who was single through like divorce or through a death. It was that it very much implied that she got like knocked up and then the guy left. It was a one night stand, wasn't it, basically? Yeah. I think that's what I said, though, that they didn't treat her having a kid as a horrible thing or, or an obstacle to romance. Well, I was going to say, like, I thought you were saying it more from, like, the old tale perspective, just, like, not an obstacle for him to love her. But I was going to take it more from the idea that, like, it's really revolutionary for the um, any show to even, like, in any way address something that's quite common, which is, you know, one night stands and young pregnancy and the guy leaving in that respect. Not, like, divorce or through death, just, like, yeah. coming and going. And it doesn't really treat um, Onion as a punishment for sex. To be fair, that that wouldn't be Onion. We're, we're talking about sour cream here, aren't we? Yeah, no, but I'm saying, though, that usually when a woman is single and a mother in media, the child is treated as like, oh, you had that one-night stand, but the show doesn't really seem to shame her for her choice to have a one-night stand. While it doesn't really exactly praise it either, it remains a very polite neutral in that sort of dynamic, and that she's not seen as less of a person or less of a mom or less of anything because of that one-night stand that resulted in a child. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. I don't think it's really ever been addressed in like any cartoon targeted towards kids, because you know... Did you have, oh, the sex is bad. This doesn't happen. Don't look under the curtain. It's not happening. But, like, it treats it in such a really respectful way where, like you said, Vidalia is still seen as a respectable human and it doesn't treat her any less for it. It just sort of treats it as a reality because it is reality for many families that that happens. And it's also reality that, like, a lot of step families in those sort of situations do occur, which is something that, you know, I can relate to because... It wasn't through anyone I sent or anything, but I'm in a step family, and sometimes, like, that just happens a lot more often than people think. In fact, over 50% of couples in the U.S. are recoupled or remarried, and therefore there's about that many step families in the U.S., but often because of this focus on nuclear families, that isn't really shown off. But it's very much a reality 
for a lot of families in the U.S. for there to be like the mixed families with half brothers or half sisters or step brothers and stepsisters and that sort of thing. So it's really interesting that the show, you know, addresses that. I think personally, the idea of family sort of changed because it was treated as a sort of an inherent thing. You know, this is your parents. And now it's about who cares for you now. It's an action, you know, like especially when it comes to mixed families now, that at least the people I know will refer to people as their dad. Even though they're their stepdad, it's like they will just call them their dad often because the way they see it is it's the step bit doesn't matter so much. It's the fact that that person stepped in to the family and looked after them. Even if they weren't biologically theirs, it didn't matter. And I think that's in some ways a good move because in the end, you can't help who you're biologically related to. But to say to someone, if you're trying, if you're doing your best to look after kids, does it necessarily matter? Well, I mean, kind of. Well, I mean, I, I know it, it does matter, but what I mean is it's sort of an encouraging thing that these things are getting representation and that it's putting forward that positive message. I think that's a really good thing. Family stuff is tricky. <laughs> a few months back, my dad and the gems grounded me from TV. That's wow, the worst. Way. And then I found out that the gems are alien rebels and that there are other gems out in space that want us dead because they think we're traitors. And they tried to take me hostage because they think I'm my mom. And maybe I kind of am? Well, as you might have guessed from the title of the episode, it's yet another of those times when we had so much to talk about that we've had to split the whole thing in half. So definitely keep your eyes peeled for our next episode when it comes out, or we'll be doing part two. Before we go, here's where you can find us on the internet. The easiest way to get in contact with us, again, is at our website, crystalgemcast.com, or by contacting us via email at crystalgemcast at gmail.com. We've also got a Tumblr, and we also have our two Facebook pages, that's our normal Facebook page where we put our news and our Crystal Gemcast listeners group where you can pretty much post anything Stephen and the universe that you want to discuss with us or fellow fans. And of course, we are on Twitter at Crystal Gemcast in case you just want to tweet at us. We also have our YouTube channel where we put episodes of Stephen Review Universe. It's been a bit quiet for a while, but I'm going to get back to it as soon as I can. So if you want to hear what I think about random episodes of Stephen Universe, then that's where you go. I just wanted to remind everyone that if you want to help out the podcast, the best way you can do that is to go onto iTunes and give us a rating. It helps bump us up on the algorithms and we'd really appreciate it. Once again, we'd just like to thank you for pretty much for all the support you give us because we really appreciate it. I know we say this every time, but I'm basically going to keep saying that because it's still true. So thank you very much for listening. I'm Joseph. I'm Amy. And I'm Sam. And we'll see you soon. Here on the Crystal Gemcast. Bye. Goodbye. See you next time. That was the Crystal Gemcast. Our credits music, Stronger Than You, was written by Estelle and Rebecca Sugar and arranged and performed by UC Berkeley. Steven Universe was created by Rebecca Sugar and is a production of Cartoon Network Studios. Thanks for listening.